While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, Why do the legal experts say that Christ is David's son? David himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I turn your enemies into your footstool. David himself calls him Lord. So how can he be David's son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he was teaching, he said, Watch out for the legal experts. They like to walk around in long robes. They want to be greeted with honor in the markets. They long for places of honor in the synagogues and at banquets. They are the ones who cheat widows out of their homes. And to show off, they say long prayers. They will be judged most harshly. Jesus sat across from the collection box for the temple treasury and observed how the crowd gave their money. Many rich people were throwing in lots of money. One poor widow came forward and put in two small copper coins worth a penny. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than everyone who's been putting money in the treasury. All of them are giving out of their spare change. But she, from her hopeless poverty, has given everything she had, even what she needed to live on. Can you pray with me real fast? Uh, Father, thanks for this word. I ask that you uh, guide us and open us to it, that you um, uh, make room for us to receive your word. And um, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So here... In the middle of Mark's gospel, we find Jesus mentoring for ministry. Many of us who've grown up in church environments might not even really recognize what's going on here. We might not see it as Jesus mentoring. But it refers to the people around Jesus throughout this whole thing as Jesus' disciples. Jesus' disciples. Those being discipled by Jesus. They are being discipled, but the curriculum is a little unwieldy. It won't stay inside the walls of a classroom. And even Jesus' goals in teaching them might be a little different than the sort of Sunday school class that you grew up in. He's not trying to impart some sort of systematic theology on them or tap into like a new religious vocabulary so they clean up their language and start talking like church folk. We don't even have a single instance in our Gospels of Jesus stopping everything for like a pop quiz sword drill. Those are really fun to to see who can get to the passage fast enough. Who's done sword drills in their life? Ooh, maybe we need to bring those back. And to be historically accurate, there wouldn't really be like Bibles. There would be scrolls, and those scrolls probably belong to religious elite who were charged with interpreting them. So we'll be fair. But to be certain, memory of God's word, immersion in the life of the temple, and daily prayer all would have been taken for granted in Jesus' discipling. It's not really part of the, quote, discipleship program, but it's kind of the prereq. It's the wallpaper. It's the toolbox. It's the engine for their life and mission. In fact, our scene takes place in the temple. In the churchiest of church places they could have. 
This is, of course, the same temple that Jesus foretells its destruction in the next chapter, but that's a different story. Jesus had just finished preaching and explicating Torah. He's mincing like the fine points on who exactly King David is with a bunch of like divinity professors and students, and it's just they were delighted in, in him getting into all these little fine theological points. I, I read that and I'm like, I have no idea what he's talking about with David, right? But from here, it, our story takes a surprising turn. They're all really thrilled with themselves and with what he's saying. And then it says, he rips into them. He lambasts these, quote, experts of the law. They seem to be all about prestige. Bigger, better, faster, stronger, better looking. Their robes are long. Their greetings are ostentatious. Their banquets are rich. Their prayers are verbose. For these folks, little, small, and less are like dirty words. They want more. They live in a zero-sum universe where there's only so much to go around, so they need to secure the top spot. They need to get theirs. This causes them to, quote, devour widows. Our translation kind of smoothed it out and said take advantage. My, a lot of translations, kind of the Hebrew and the, and the Greek of this, uh, the Hebrew and the Old Testament prophets and the, and the Greek that's alluding to that is a little, a lot more uh, intense. It says, they devour widows' houses, which is the way the prophets talk about cheating the most vulnerable. Basically, in a dog-eat-dog world, widows and orphans are prey. Most of the time, I'd like to think that I would step in and stop that from happening. I'd notice that a widow's house is being devoured, and I'd, I'd like chain myself to the bulldozer or something, right? Like, that, that's kind of the image I get is, like, a bulldozer is liter literally devouring a house, leveling it to the ground. But often it's a lot more subtle than that. Like, like there's a picture, Bethy. Like, this is maybe more like payday loans or, like, cash offers. Uh, this is from uh, a friend, Justin Cook, uh, over here in Lion Park, takes these pictures. And a lot of us have gotten these. And... D never call the number. They're not, it's not going to be a good deal for you, <laughs> right? This happens in landlords who raise rent on a whim because they, you know, change the color of the of the hallway or or put in a new mailbox, but aren't responsive or responsible to tenants with like disabilities or who are undocumented because they don't have any leverage. They pull a profit even if it doesn't like ping the legal systems. In a world where everyone's got to eat, even though it needn't be this way, there's always the same type of people that get devoured by the system. And so Jesus brings this up. He goes there. It's a little uncomfortable. And he's around all of these, quote, judges, religious folk making determinations based on the Jewish law. And he says, you'll be judged. You'll be judged most harshly. If you're going to judge, you're going to be judged. With much power comes much responsibility, and you're going to be held responsible for these subtle but insidiously merciless ways that you treat people. This sets up a contrast then. It begs the question, 
what ministry is Jesus giving them? He's obviously not mentoring them for this kind of ministry. What kind of disciples, what sorts of apprentices, really, is Jesus trying to make them into? Is Jesus trying to make us into? This is the sort of recognition many of, like, our post-grad students get about halfway through their programs when they see some of their classmates who, who they're with or who are ahead of them or some of their professors and they, they start to get like the epiphany that I actually don't want to be that sort of person and I'm a little scared because I've sunk too much in and I have too many student loans to like drop out of this, but I don't want to be like the person that I'm being trained to be. As, as Matthew spoke last week, they, it seems like they kind of have a, have a choice. They have the choice to continue in the stream of things, quote, just the way the world works, or they have a choice to be interrupted and to, to be part of the interruption of that, to be guided in a new way, to follow and to learn from and to find our lives and our futures in the way of Jesus. And that's what, that's what Jesus is showing them. That's what Jesus is guiding them into into. That's the ministry that Jesus is giving them. So Jesus in this episode gives them and us, I want to say gives them and us three new ministries. These aren't like traditional programs that you'd see on a church website or get some like internet accreditation that you can buy. But I strongly doubt you'll ever see them like pop up on late night religious television with like 900 numbers to call and, and like prayers to offer. But Jesus mentors them and us for ministry, and he gives us first a ministry of noticing in this story, a ministry of noticing. And ooh, this, this is a hard one because it requires a few things that are in decreasing supply. Time, <laughs> attention, and imagination. Time, attention, and imagination for this ministry of noticing. After Jesus finishes teaching, he huddles his team to sit across from the collection box. And we're not going to do this later on. Um, there is a bench right by the watering can where we would put our tithes and offerings and stuff. But please don't sit there and, like, <laughs> scope down who is engaging with that offering box. But he gathers his team around the collection box for the temple treasury. This doesn't really seem like the best investment of time. But Jesus' teaching moments happen this way. By putting your body in a place of discomfort and disorientation to experience without a whole lot of idea where all this is going or what's going to happen, to experience what is already happening around you. We, we so often expect... Um, to be guided by Jesus to be in a place where a miracle can happen, but most of the time Jesus is bringing us to places where normal miracles are already happening. We just don't notice them. Places that are rife with both creation's deep beauty and hurt and the deep things of God that are already there. We don't notice them. We often miss so much because we're in a hurry or because we look, like, we look away right when things happen. Or maybe we're looking at the wrong thing. I think kids are both great and terrible at this. 
<laughs> they're great because they're not yet so locked into the way things are in the window dressing that we take for granted, that draw our eyes, that they notice like the strange mundane, mundane things that have crept into the background. And so like when you ask, uh, like when I ask Titus about something, he normally wants to talk about the, like, the strangest part of that thing. And there's like all the actual things and then there's the thing he wants to talk about. Kids are great at noticing. They're also terrible at noticing. So they often lack the ability or the discipline to keep watching when it seems like nothing's happening. <laughs> like kids, like all of us, need to like have both a lot to teach and a lot to learn about this sort of noticing and the sort of hope that it, noticing is predicated on. We each, like kids, have unique ways of seeing and gifts to be given to each other in the way we see and experience God and God's work in the world. But also, we each, like kids, need to be trained and taught and disciplined and discipled to know which window of the car to look out of at the right time. That's a really hard thing to do with kids who don't know their right from their left to say, look out the right window, right? So it's always the wrong one. So we need to be taught, we need to be trained, we need to be disciplined and discipled in that way of noticing. Jesus observes the normal practice of giving to the temple's general fund. And read this passage with the steering group this week. Someone commented on how much fun it would be to go people watching with Jesus, right? Like go to the mall, sit with Jesus, and listen to commentary, running commentary on people. People of means and affluence here, one after another, throw into the basket. But Jesus has the imagination and the expectation to notice, just to notice, the poor widow throwing in two coins. He must have really been watching what she was doing, right? She throws in two coins, and Mark records that these two coins are like the smallest two denominational coins in their money system. Less than a penny. A pittance for sure. But Jesus sees her. Jesus is captivated by her. He invites his disciples to see her, to notice her. In my mustard seed group, we're reading Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove's book, Reconstructing the Gospel, and he talks about his experiences of moving into a neighborhood, and, and he and his wife would walk this neighborhood, and they'd repeatedly pass by a porch, like porch gatherings that their neighbors were doing, and he always waved, and sometimes they would like lob a question at him. And he, it wasn't until months had gone by that he realized these questions were actually invitations to participate in that. But like most like white suburban folk who don't do a whole lot of porch sitting, he didn't realize what was going on for like quite a while and was pretty oblivious to it until one day he walked onto the porch and began to sit. And then he tells the ways that once he started to sit and ask questions and listen to answers, he began to see differently. He was invited and initiated into a whole different part, a parallel universe of Durham that had already existed. He was initiated into a ministry of noticing with neighbors, and particularly one neighbor, Ann Atwater. You'll recognize her in the coming months as the movie Best of Enemies comes out in theaters. And she became his tutor and, and brought him into this ministry of noticing that has changed his life. 
This ministry brings us into a lifelong pursuit to have our minds and hearts renewed so that we can see, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds through our eyes. Because the paradox most of us experience is that the more we know a person or a place, the more we assume we know about them. Like the closer we get to someone, the more we assume we know about them. But Jesus is calling us to enter more deeply into that familiarity and to see more and to expect more and to encounter the divine, to, to not just look over someone, but to look into someone. Dorothy Day, who's the founder of Catholic Worker Ministries, had some of these relationships with the poor. And she was asked about the mystery of the poor because she always claimed to encounter Christ in the poor. In, in the poor person that she feeds, she's feeding Christ. And she was asked how she sees and expects the things of God in and among the poor, and she describes it this way. Just the mystery of the poor is this, that they are Jesus. And what you do for them, you do for him. It's the only way we have of knowing and believing in our love. The mystery of poverty is that by sharing in it, by making ourselves poor, by giving to others, we increase our knowledge and belief in love. By sharing, first by noticing, and then by sharing in this sort of poverty. I think this is what Jesus is doing with his disciples and calling us as his disciples to be a part of. The ministry of noticing is indeed a ministry of participation. Noticing the poor widow draws us into her life. Not in the sort of way that like romanticizes poverty, but in a way that wakes us up. That challenges our assumptions and makes us choose which way we're going to build our lives. Who are the builders and who are the heirs to this kingdom? This is all part of Jesus' curriculum. He also calls us into and initiates a ministry of re-narrating. Jesus invites us into a different story. He begins to narrate the story essentially saying, don't let your eyes fool you. <laughs> you don't just see the rich guys throwing in a lot. You just saw a widow give it all. From hopeless poverty, she's given everything she had, even what she needed to live on, is what the scripture says. Do you see this new math? It's really confusing. If you don't see it at first, that's okay. Because it's not that their giving is wrong. I'd imagine Jesus would also have some really strong words if they weren't giving a lot into, into the pot out of their riches, or if they, like, in some sort of pledge drive sort of way, only matched what the widow was going to give, you know? But Jesus is reimagining the whole thing. Who's valuable? What's generosity? These new stories start to cut through the things that make us blind. As Sam Wells puts it, the abundance of God lays bare the scarcity of sin. He's seeing abundance in her poverty and scarcity in their riches. It's all laid bare. It's opened up for us. A new story has been cracked open. This has long been God's project for God's people, showing us abundance and calling us into this way of new, 
re-narrating the world. From God's final day of creation, rest, making more space even as God is filling up creation, to the manna in the desert where God is showering down food on them and provision. They even have quail coming out of their ears. (laughs) God is providing enough, more than enough. But every attempt to commodify or stockpile or self-rely is thwarted in this sort of abundance. To even like the selection of David as Israel's king, where they they go from brother to brother to brother to brother, and, and it's like tallest to shortest, and then they can't even find David, this shepherd boy who likes to write songs and who doesn't even come close to fitting in the armor of the previous king. See, all of these are sur- surprising re-narrations, subversions of what we thought we knew and should expect in favor of something less that was really more. Something less that was really more. We've all been in this like, process of re-narration when it comes to starting this ministry that's now four years old in this neighborhood. Because there's a lot of prevailing narrations that are really strong about how you start a church. Like narrations about um, gathering the right kind of people and the people that can support this and gathering people who are like you and who like you. <laughs> narrations about this neighborhood. Like, don't, don't you think this neighborhood is X, Y, and Z? Or don't you think this neighborhood could be X, Y, and Z? Rather than, what do you know about this neighborhood? What, what is it already? What is God, has God done? And what is God already doing there? Or narrations about if there is enough. Narrations about whether the center can hold. All of these narrations are really strong. And Jesus is continuing to call us into these ministries of noticing and re-narrating because that's the place of hope and healing and hospitality in Christ. That's what our calling is here. So we have ministry of noticing and the ministry of re-narrating. We also have the ministry of sacrifice we see in this story. This ministry of re-narration gives way to the ministry of sacrifice The new math forms an equation towards wholeness. God expects all of us. That's what the widow gave. The the actual amount on paper and the balance sheets is, is kind of beside the point. The widow gave all, everything she needed to live on. The whole thing. I don't tithe a tenth of my life, my time, talents, treasures, attention, affection. I'm called to give it all. Even if all of those things only add up to two mites. And I've been somehow able to exist on this meager fare. The ministry of sacrifice asks us to lay it all down. All of it. A quick note. I think this passage is a little troublesome and and bothers me because it seems really unsatisfactory when it comes to justice in some respects. Like the vulnerable widow is throwing her last less than a dime into the offering plate for the machine that is making her poor. (laughs) 
and it doesn't seem to really address that. Isn't that kind of messed up? There seems to need to be some sort of accountability. Can't she get a better return on her investment? Um, but a ministry of sacrifice is inherently a ministry of risky trust. Maybe even in someone that's going to hurt you to some extent. Being taken advantage of, being subject to the ways that sin and death still operate within God's good creation. There's a lot of different ways that this ministry of sacrifice work their way out in our everyday lives, in our jobs, in our family life, with our friends, in our civic lives in the city. And writer Annie Dillard talks about this sort of riskiness and the temptation to be less risky in her field, and she's a writer. She says, one of the things I know about writing is this, spend it all, shoot it, play it, lose it all right away every time. Do not hoard what seems to be good for a later place in the book or for another book. Give it, give it all, give it now. The impulse to save something good for a better place later is a signal to spend it now. Something more will arise for later, something better, quote, abundance, right? These things fill from behind, from beneath, like well water. Similarly, the impulse to keep it to yourself, what you've learned, is not only shameful, but it's destructive. Anything you do not give freely and abundantly becomes lost to you. When you open your safe, you find ashes. This is all paraphrasing what Jesus is saying, sitting in front of the offering plate, watching this woman give her all, give it away, give it now giving it all away, all of yourself, all of your hope, all of your resources, everything at your disposal is predicated on the bold claim that God will provide, that God will judge. That's how she's able to give to an unjust temple. It's God will judge. He'll be judged more harshly. That God will defend, that God will take your wholeness, my wholeness, and stitch it into the whole-making shalom which God has promised and for which we pray. This is what we're saying. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whereas the legal experts could write a sermon and wax elegant about theological intricacies, all of the things I like, by the way, right? The ways they took and the ways they gave indicated that they weren't in on the joke. They couldn't notice it. They couldn't imagine it. In ways that continue to unfold in the Gospels, ways which they get implicated at the cross, they were actually violently opposed to it. It's not just that they didn't get it, but they were violently opposed to this way of Jesus and wanted to snuff it out. So all of this ministry training is to get Jesus' disciples ready, to prepare them and to prepare us to be able to notice what God has done outside of the Jerusalem gates in the public execution of Jesus on the cross. Consider how many people on death row now that you've ever noticed or that make any difference to your life right now. And, and we think we would have noticed Jesus, right? But that's where salvation lies. Isaiah 50, 
3 says, He possessed no splendid form for us to see, no desirable appearance. He was despised and avoided by others. A man who suffered, who knew sickness well, like someone from whom people hid their faces. He was despised, and we didn't think about him. Jesus is preparing his disciples. Will we take up this ministry of noticing? Jesus' disciples then and now are, are pulled into this project of re-narrating, this ministry of re-narration, that Jesus has come to bring life and bring it to the fullest, John 10.10 10 tells us, in and through his death. You see that new math happening? It's the same math in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, the mourning, the meek, the justice hungry, the merciful, the clean of heart, the peacemakers, and persecuted. Not all of the photo negatives of those things which seem to get you ahead and make you secure. An imagination forming that can make sense of this story that though Jesus was rich, Yet for, her, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. This is a new math. This is a new imagination. This is a new re-narration. Will you join in this ministry of re-narrating the world into abundance and out of scarcity? And lastly, Jesus is promising us a ministry of sacrifice built on his sacrifice. In the poor widow, we... We see in Christ's presence, we see Jesus, the Christ, prefigured in the form of this woman. She's giving all she had to live on to the benefit of those who were devouring her. Anything we then, on top of that, throw into the basket, or everything we throw into the basket, is like Jesus' body that we'll share at this table in a couple minutes. Everything we throw in is taken, it's blessed, it's broken, and it's given back to us. It's somehow transformed into more than enough. Through Jesus' own death and his resurrection, we're made into, as his body, more than enough. We have everything we need in this room right now. And when you're gone, we're less without you, actually, but we still probably have everything we need because Christ has given us these gifts. Christ has drawn us into God's more than enough. Will we continue to be remade as ministers of sacrifice in the likeness of Jesus? Let me pray uh, before we go into a time to, to contemplate some of these questions. Father, thanks for this word and this challenge. Thanks for this new world that you've opened up, this strange new world of which we're residents. Thanks for uh, figures like the poor widow, which 2,000 years later, it doesn't take a whole lot to imagine a character like that in our everyday lives, in the checkout line, or at the DMV, uh, in the places that we avert our eyes, um, give us courage and strength to notice. For those stories that are so deeply embedded that we don't even 
recognize that we're living in, in them and they're destructive and they're scarce and they breed more scarcity and fear. Break those open and help us re-narrate into abundance. Knowing that you'll provide, you'll judge, you'll take care of us. There's enough. We're enough. Because you're more than enough. And Lord, in, in this ministry of sacrifice, know that, that we're not the ones initiating sacrifice. We give our all and you give us back your all. Give us the courage to do that, to go there, to operate that way. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.